I'm happy that uh, although over the next few weeks we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to have a, a lean towards uh, the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, I've ominously titled my sermon today, The Wrath of God. But, but as, we, as we lean towards the wrath of God, what we're going to find is, is that for God's children, wrath leads to light, light wrath Wrath leads to life and light, and so um, I hope that that's something that um, you will see over over the next few weeks. You will see as we uh, go through Romans. Romans really is heavy on this idea of the wrath of God, and and really the next couple of um, sermons. By next couple, I mean probably ten. Will 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 all be sort of? I mean, I can't help it. That's the way the Bible was written. Um, Romans one, the middle of Romans one to. Romans three twenty really speaks to um, this wrath and man's condition, and so we're going to speak on that. But um, so I hope you're I hope you're prepared for that, and I hope that you're excited about that because uh, what we find at the end of wrath for those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have surrendered their life, those who have repented and believed the gospel, is life, and so it's exciting um, for us personally when we think about the wrath we deserve, and the life that we have. Um, So over the last few weeks, we've seen how Paul is laying out a defense of his faith. He's laying out a defense of the faith of the Christians in Rome and all the Christians everywhere. everywhere. Last week, we ended our discussion by promoting, um, (coughs) excuse me, last week we ended our discussion by promoting some very important reasons as to why we should have confidence in our faith in Christ, why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. And we left last week thinking on this verse, the righteous shall live by faith. Now today, we begin to shift um, from Paul's uh, celebration and introduction uh, into Paul's introduction into this idea of the wrath of God. This introduction into the wrath of God. I want to spend our time today and over the next several weeks really looking at this, examining this, going through this. Um, we're, going to, we're going to look over the next few weeks on the wrath of God really and why we deserve the wrath of God. Why we deserve the wrath of God. Everyone that's sitting in this room, everyone to ever exist, deserves the wrath of God. And I want to examine why we deserve the wrath of God and examine the wrath of God in general. And that's going to be from Romans 1, 18 through 23. So if you haven't already turned there, if you would, uh, turn there, Romans 1, 18 through 23. You know, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version and Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is why we sing how great thou art, and we look at creation and we say there has to be a God. It's clear that there's a God. It's clear that there is some creator, at least, even if you're not willing to admit that it's our God. 
in the things that have been made. So they, <laughs> they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We pray with me today? Lord, that you would teach us more of your character and not just more of what we would like to hear or know. That would you open and reveal your character and your heart to us so that we can repent and believe the gospel. And when we go to sleep, that we would repent and believe the gospel. And when we wake up, we would repent and believe the gospel. And that we would repeat that step and repeat that step over and over again until we meet you in eternity. Lord, would you help us to trust in what we see from the Bible, to know that if you speak on it, that it's good for us, to take that, to chew it up, and then to let it provide nourishment for our bodies, for our spirits as we serve you. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and and for his sake. Amen. I hope that if anything can be said of me and the way I preach, it is that the gospel is the center. That I put the Bible at the forefront and Jesus on display. Um, I, if you have compliments for me about my preaching, that would be the thing I would like you to say. I don't want you to force that. It must be true. But I hope that it can be said about me that that is the case. Um, with that said, every message that I preach is not going to be to your liking. As a matter of fact, I have to preach messages that are equally convicting to me, and they're not necessarily to my liking either. I, re- I genuinely feel this way, and I know that some of you may not, but if a message is not on some level like making you cringe a little bit um, or challenging you in some way, um, then I and other pastors are, are doing it wrong. Um, so what fluffy message can we discuss today? Oh, it's the wrath of God. That's right. The wrath of God is often misunderstood, and it's often passed over um, when we're discussing the character of God. It's often passed over as a characteristic of God. But you and I must understand that God's wrath is perfect, and it's in line with his perfect character. Don't miss this idea, friends. The wrath of God is one of God's perfections. That is why you have heard it said by me and by others that God receives just as much glory in withholding his wrath and in saving sinners as he does in pouring out his wrath and in condemning sinners. We will come to see wrath as a dominant theme in the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, it is a dominant theme in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, there are more references to God's anger, to his fury, and to his wrath than his love. The Old Testament has more than 20 words to describe wrath and anger and fury, and more than 600 passages, uh, passage appearances. We see the first mention of God's wrath in Exodus 22. We, remember, uh, we, we should remember those things. God's laying out his law and talking about the anger of uh, God's anger will burn against them. 
if they don't obey the law specifically, this was in the way they uh, treated other people. We also see God's wrath appear again when Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. What do you remember was happening at the foot of the mountain as Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? What do you remember? Not rhetorical. What do you remember? What was happening? Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. What was happening at the foot of the mountain? Just went through this. Thank you. You weren't even here for that sermon. Uh, the, the people were constructing the golden calf, right? They were building the golden calf. It was odd because God was setting some standards and some rules for worship, and the people are downstairs at the bottom of the mountain building a golden calf, and they're saying, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Do you remember what God said he was willing to do to those people for Moses? He said, I will, listen Moses, let's just make a deal right now. I will let my wrath, it says anger in the uh, English Standard Version, but what it is, it's wrath. I will let my wrath burn against them. I will completely destroy them and we'll just start over with you. God's wrath is is a common theme throughout the Bible. His wrath or his anger was against the people of Moses' time. It wasn't just a Romans or an Exodus thing, though. Psalm 2 speaks of God's wrath in this way. It says, Kiss the Son, S-O-N, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Then there are some verses about God's wrath that make you want to cringe. Listen to this, Psalm 7610. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. You know what that's saying? You will be adorned. The the Lord is adorned with the remnant of wrath. It's it's sort of cringeworthy if you're used to the uh, fluffy cloud unicorn playland God, right? It's sort of cringeworthy if you're used to the God who is love and accepting and inclusive, not in the way that I preached on a few weeks ago, but in a different way. If that, if that didn't make you cringe, this will. Isaiah 9. It's going to bring you right out of fluffy cloud unicorn playland, I promise. Isaiah 9. 18, for wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. Listen to this. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. When the wrath of God is kindled, when the wrath of God comes... The people who are under the wrath of God, the Bible says, are like fuel for the fire of God's wrath. John three thirty five and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In another passage of John, the Bible says, He is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. If this isn't throwing your perceived notions off enough, this will. Paul in Romans 9 was recounting history and he said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But he takes it a step further and we'll discuss this in depth because we're going to get to Romans 9. 
someday. In Romans 9, Paul says that Pharaoh was created to be an enemy of God. Created to have a hardened heart. Therefore, Pharaoh was created to be an instrument of wrath. Romans 9 says that Pharaoh's purpose was wrath. His life purpose was wrath. And then if that, if that doesn't uh, throw you off about the character of God enough, the Lord in Romans 9 says, I'm the potter and you're the clay. If you have a problem with it, who is the clay to tell the potter how to form a vessel? Some vessels will be used for lesser use and some vessels will be used for uh, greater use. That's the Bryce American Standard Version of the commentary of that verse, of those verses. The wrath of God is not a made-up topic. It's not secondary. The wrath of God is one of the primary topics of the Bible. Why is this so? You may have remembered me saying a few hundred times, but without an understanding of God's wrath, without an understanding of God's justice, His judgment, how can we understand love and mercy and grace? Friends, if the gates of hell are bolted shut or don't even exist like some people would have you believe, and if heaven doesn't have a gate at all, if there are no requirements or restrictions for eternity, then why do we need God? And what is the purpose of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? If heaven is a wide open path for everyone, for anyone of any background, without any, uh, without any uh, restrictions, then Jesus Christ was a man who died in vain. But we live in an age of cheap grace and misunderstood love. And I think one of the main reasons is because we have not grasped the concept of God's wrath. Many will say, but anger is a characteristic of man, and God cannot be angry because he's perfect. But this thought assumes that God is not justified in his anger. Sinful anger is the result of a finite, short-sighted man getting in his feelings. But godly anger is the just action of an infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who cannot stand sin. He cannot cannot allow sin to go unpunished because sin is an affront to His holiness. We must understand wrath because love and grace are void of meaning if we don't understand the wrath of God. John Murray describes wrath this way. It is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. Let me say it again for those who didn't hear me. It is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. It is a holy and righteous God's response to acts against his holiness. It's not some childish flailing or human anger like we see on social media or like you may deal with 
with your children or other children or really people who call themselves adults. It is not reactionary or it is not because God gets his feelings hurt. It is calculated, it is thought out, and it is stored up. Let me give you reasons, some reasons why I think this is true. There are two New Testament words for this type of anger, this type of wrath. The word thymos and the word orge. And it is pronounced this way. It's spelled O-R-G-E. And I'm not just trying to be weird. It is pronounced that way. The word thymos and the word orge. Thymos means to rush along fiercely or a panting rage. You've seen it before if you've seen someone in a fight or you've seen someone so mad. You can see it in their eyes. You know, you might have heard this saying, they saw red or they're so angry, they're, I just can't, you know, it's like, like um, Hulk in the, in the Avengers movie. It's, it's that type of anger. It's a, it's a reactionary it's, it's an anger that is just, it's uncontrollable. It's in the moment. Then there's the other word for wrath, and that's orge. Orge means to grow ripe. To grow ripe. Or it means a wrath that is building up or is storing up. And in all but two uses, orge is used for God's just wrath. God's wrath does not just come from a place of surprise or reaction, but it is something that is building up, that is ripening. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slack, as some men consider slackness. What it's saying is this, even though the wrath of God has not been poured out yet, you must understand that it's sort of getting ripe. And there will be a time and moments where the wrath of God is poured out, and we'll see that. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit over the next few weeks, how the wrath of God is poured out on earth. But there will be a time in the end for all those who are called in unbelief where the wrath of God will be poured out once and for all and eternally. Exodus says he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but by no means will the guilty go unpunished. Later in Romans, Paul says that everyone will give an account of himself unto God. We will not be punished. His wrath will not be poured out by some whining, petulant child, but by the God of the universe whose holiness has been transgressed time and time again. He will not pardon the guilty. If anyone has hope of escaping the wrath of God, there must be an acceptable way made for them. Someone must satisfy the wrath that belongs to them. With such an emphasis in the Bible on God's holiness and the wrath that follows unbelief, Paul does his best to warn the church and also teach them how to be agents of God's righteousness. So in verse 18 he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. <clears throat> when we see this, we need to look back at the previous verse, or verses, because our verse is pointing us to something. It's the therefore. It's actually therefore. The wrath of God. So what is the therefore? Therefore. To this point... In his letter in Rome, Paul is encouraging the Roman believers. And he ends the verses we studied last week by saying this. 
In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he references Habakkuk and he says, The righteous shall live by faith. And then we have our verses today. What I believe Paul is saying is this. Jesus and his gospel did two objective things in the world and for the world. The gospel shows a definitive way of escaping the wrath of God. And that is a life of faith resting in the righteousness of Jesus. Remember, faith is simply opening your hands to receive the righteousness of God. Secondly, the gospel reveals the wrath of God on all who are faithless and reject the gospel. I would like to assert to you today that understanding these two key points will not only transform us personally, it will make us people who understand God better by making us more dependent on Him. These key points will also help us to be better proclaimers of the gospel. Because we will proclaim a gospel that identifies man's most important and basic needs and then provides an answer to that need. The problem we see in our society and especially in our churches is that the wrath of God is not spoken of enough. When we present the gospel, we often do so in very man-centered ways. I want to point out a few of those for you today so that you can understand how we point out the gospel often, how the gospel is preached on Sunday mornings, how the gospel is spoken of in our homes, and how we are missing the mark. Now, these points aren't original to me. These are just sort of points that have been studied and examined through uh, Christian sociology. One way we share the gospel, quote-unquote, we often share Jesus in a way that answers a deep longing or perceived need that is not primarily founded on Christ. Often we try to present the gospel primarily to the purpose of meeting needs, felt needs, whether it is relationship issues or fears or anxiety or bad habits or lust or loneliness or addiction or whatever it may be. Now, I will tell you, I will be the first to tell you that the gospel is the answer to all of those things. But the pro- that, that is not the primary purpose of the gospel. The primary purpose is not to heal those felt needs in our life. The reason we meet people with felt needs or meet people at their felt needs is because we want to establish a relationship between the person sharing the gospel and the person listening to the gospel. We want to talk about their relationship issues and their fears and their anxieties and their bad habits and their lust and and all of these things. And that relationship will go far in meeting those felt, those perceived needs. And this carries over into the church. So we have hundreds of volumes of self-help books. We have pastors who do entire series on self-help topics, which is not always bad if it's done in the right way. What they're doing is they're attempting to bridge the gap between the Christian and the non-Christian. And that's, that's understandable where that comes from. They're attempting to bridge the gap between the Christian and the non-Christian. But here's the problem, friends. The gospel doesn't attempt to bridge the gap between the Christian and the non-Christian. The gospel bridges the gap between the non-Christian and God. And we, when we try to meet needs only or primarily, we are missing the mark 
as it, as it pertains to the ultimate need of every individual ever born. When we present God as only the fulfiller of personal needs, we miss the point of the gospel altogether. But it hits on what the average person wants, right? You know the biggest problem when we present the gospel as a gospel that meets felt needs? Needs in society are constantly changing. Christians who present or follow the gospel this way will always be chasing the needs and wants of society. Paul later said that a time was coming where man would suppress the truth, ignore sound doctrine, and listen to what would suit their own desires, their own, what they might call, needs. Here's where we are in our society and, and why this way of thinking is failing. The prevailing theme in our society is that we have actually very little needs. We tell ourselves that we are perfect just the way we are. And we don't need a higher deity, deity to give us a new life or a transformed life. It would be neat for most people if God was nothing more than just a point of contact for the afterlife. If God was just a pilot to the afterlife as opposed to the God of the afterlife. The message of felt needs met is not one our society needs to hear. Our society needs to hear the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that God makes you a better person or fixes the one you are or God meets the needs. He, 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 he heals you from your anxiety. He heals you from your addiction. Although that is true. The message of the gospel is not that God makes you a better person but a new person. Another way people present the gospel is by focusing heavily on what God can give a person, God's promises. The gospel is about fulfilling the promises of God to people, but it is not primarily about the promises of God. While the gifts and promises of God should not be overlooked, they are also not the primary point of the gospel. Many in the prosperity gospel present the gospel in such a way if you would just plant a seed of faith then god would multiply that seed if you are just if you are sick or if you have an addiction or if you need to be healed from something and your faith is strong enough you will be healed if you pray hard enough and believe hard enough god will grant you all the wealth health and success that you need can i tell you something that might be difficult to hear Although our prayers, the prayers of a righteous person, are effective, we cannot pray our way to health or wealth or prosperity. We cannot claim it or speak it into existence. But more than that, we cannot speak. This is very important. We cannot speak, pray, or hope our way into salvation just because we want it enough. We cannot pray our way to salvation. The prayer you prayed as a child or an adult did not save you. Praying a sinner's prayer does not save you. Wanting it bad enough does not save you. And focusing just on the promises of God and believing really hard in them will not save a person from the wrath of God that is to come. 
The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God and only those who are called by the Son can come to the Father. We ought not present the gospel as a primary means of receiving the promises of God. Even though earthly promises fulfilled are often results of following God, they should never be our motivation for following God. Often the gospel is presented primarily through personal experience. Now, I believe in the value of a good gospel testimony, so don't get me wrong. I believe that telling someone who you once were and who you are now is very important. Paul did it at other times and as a means of comforting the angst of fellow believers. But this shouldn't be our primary thrust in preaching the gospel. Paul did not speak of his personal experience here, although he had a lot to speak of. He had a lot of change to speak of here. He did not speak of it. What did he speak on? He spoke on the wrath of God. He spoke on faith. He spoke on trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He spoke on what true salvation, what the gospel is actually speaking on. And he spoke for the people who did not believe on the wrath of God ahead. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about the subject, about Paul's conversation here in Romans. This is not what Paul does. He doesn't speak of personal experience. There is no mention here of any experience. He is not talking in terms of their happiness or some sort of particular state of mind or something that might appeal to to them (coughs) as certain possibilities do. But this staggering, amazing thing, the wrath of God, and he puts it first. It is the thing he says at once. Folks, if we are free from anxiety, we thank the Lord. But being free from anxiety cannot save us from the wrath that is ahead. If we are free from lust and loneliness, we thank the Lord. But freeing, being free from lust and loneliness cannot save us from the wrath that's ahead. If we are successful in the world, if we have clean health until we die at a ripe old age, if we have wealth, if we understand and comprehend the wonder of creation, even that perspective cannot meet the deepest need of every soul. A testimony of a redeemed life cannot meet the deepest need of every soul. The innermost part of every human needs to hear this, that he is a sinner and destined for hell under the eternal wrath of God. That he is without hope in the world. But that God had a plan to redeem man from the beginning of time and just at the right time he sent his son. His son lived as a man and God, fully God and fully human. He lived a perfect life for 30-something years on earth, and he died a death that he did not deserve. In that death, he took on the wrath of God for you, for me, for all who would trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that we can live by faith and we can be counted as righteous. As righteous. But that we, that we must repent. And believe this gospel. Because by no means, the Bible says, will the guilty go unpunished. 
The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. And if we don't, and if we do not believe, if we do not receive, open our hands to receive the righteousness of Jesus, that will be our fate. And if we think that somehow God being a God of love will preserve the world from the wrath of God, we need to ask ourselves this question. Who did God love more? Who does God love more than his own son? Ask yourself this question. If you think that God being a loving and caring and fluffy God will preserve the world, will will just wipe hell off the map, will open the gates of heaven, you you need to ask yourself these questions. Is there any one that God loved more than his own son? And yet, he did not spare his own son from his wrath. If you think that the love of God somehow wipes away the wrath of God, look at his son. He does not love anyone more that has ever existed than Jesus. I'm not going to get into a Trinity talk here, but they are the same. He loves himself as he loves him. He loves Jesus as he loves himself. And yet, at the cross, he poured out the wrath of God. So when the Bible says that man is without excuse, that's what it means. That the knowledge of God is prevalent through creation and all other things. But if, if Jesus Christ had the wrath of God poured out on him, then we are all without any excuses. There's not enough. There's not enough. Oh, God loves us. Oh, heaven is not real. It's a construct of man. I mean, hell is not real. It's a construct of man, not heaven. Sorry. Still, it's the same thing. Those people that believe that probably believe the other. Is there anyone that God loves more than his own son? And yet, and yet, he still poured on poured out his wrath on him so that those who would trust in that right act, the perfection of God himself, Jesus Christ, could have life. Friends, we, amen, right? You should be jumping out of your skin right now in thanks. Friends, here's what we don't need. We don't need more self-help. We don't need more you know, telling us how to better, live better lives, living our best life now, whatever other bull junk that someone will try to sell you. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Dead men and women don't need to be taught how to live better lives. They need to be taught how to have life. They need to be awakened. They need to be given life. Presenting people with the gospel that is anything less than what I have described as found in the Bible is not offering a cure. It's like finding out a person has lung cancer and treating the lung cancer by giving them an oxygen tank to carry around. You're treating the symptoms but not the cause. The Bible says that the wrath of God has been revealed to man against ungodliness and unrighteousness, but also the answer to the wrath that has been revealed is can be found through the person and work of Jesus. 
and through his imputed righteousness to sinners. Friends, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. The gospel is not about making you a better person. The gospel is about making you a new person. And as a result, things in your life will change in a positive way. This is why, this is why self-help doesn't work. Because self-help addresses the problems before it addresses the main problem. Before it addresses the fact that we need to be redeemed. We need to be new. If God did not withhold his wrath from his son, please don't be so arrogant to think that he would withhold it from you or from me. We must, by faith, open our hands and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And then, and only then, let the gospel transform us. Let the gospel redeem us. And what did we say a few weeks ago? When we do that, it is the power of God working through us. And we'll know it, and the world will see it and believe. Would you pray with me today? Lord, we're so grateful that you have not left us under your wrath, but you have given us an answer to your wrath, and that is the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That is his righteousness alone. And so at night, if we belong to you, we can put our head down on our, down on our pillow, and we can go to sleep knowing that you have done the work to redeem us. In the morning, when we belong to you, even though we are sinners and still face and do stupid things in our lives, we can look at you and know, look at ourselves in the mirror and know that we are redeemed, not based on works, not based on things that we can do, but based on what you have done for us. Lord, let that be our motivation to live holy lives because you have given it all for us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, thank you for saving us from your wrath. Thank you for taking that on, for swallowing that at the cross. Lord, let the knowledge of the wrath of God be our motivating factor in bringing the gospel to our friends and family so that they would not face this wrath that they would trust in the righteousness of Christ and be saved. We love you and we praise you and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.